every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. fundamental challenges in rural Canadian communities is healthcare. Folks in rural and remote communities are not the same as our urban counterparts and therefore our healthcare needs to be different. And there are so many aspects to that. Over the next few episodes, I'll cover a number of elements relating to rural health. The first one is how to include residents in solutions-based healthcare. The British Columbia Rural Health Network is the healthcare voice of the rural residents of BC and seeks better health outcomes for all people through solutions-based approaches with governments and information provision to residents. Paul Adams leads operations and administration at the BC Rural Health Network. He comes from a background in executive management, both in nonprofit organizations and in industry. His past work has included working as the executive director of the largest conservation group in BC and as a leader, both provincially and nationally, in the clean renewable energy sector. Paul's involvement in health and health care started many years earlier, though, when he managed his father's rural medical office. His work as an executive involved commuting from his home in the upper Similkameen region of BC to large urban centers. And after two decades of doing that, he decided to return to work in his home community and started a farm with his wife growing organic food for local residents. An injury in the summer of 2021 prevented Paul from continuing this journey for now and the opportunity to return to his roots in rural health emerged simultaneously. Paul has enjoyed representing the interests of all rural residents in BC regarding their health and wellness. 
Paul is a husband, a father, and a grandfather, and believes that protecting healthcare resources and enhancing them for future generations is critical to us all. Paul, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I want to start off by asking you really how the BC Rural Health Network came to be. Well, thank you for having me, Shauna, and a pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, the BC Rural Health Network is a collective of organizations, individuals, municipalities, and uh, a collective that formed around an episode back in the early portion of 2000 where uh, we centralized services regionally and a lot of smaller rural communities uh, lost uh, health resources and health services and uh, a lot of advocacy individual advocacy community-based advocacy groups came into existence and started champion championing the need for um, preserving and enhancing uh, health services in, in rural British Columbia it wasn't uh, until about well 15 years later uh, that those ind independent individual groups uh, started coming together and, and cross-pollinating uh, thoughts and information and it was a government representative at the time who came to the group and said you know if you were to set up a organization that would became an umbrella group and and represented the broader interest of rural residents, you'd probably have more impact and um, effect on provincial policy. So uh, the group did that and basically it started off as around a, literally around a uh, dining room table and a small uh, collective of individuals as usually happens. One, one person steps forward and created the BC Rural Health Network. And so there was, I think there was five um, groups that initially came together and uh, they formed uh, the collective. And really since then, the group has grown organically with very little funding and, and a small membership base, but a very um, significant need presented itself and people uh, started coming into the organization by their own means that has now become more focused and when over the past 12 months and, and uh, since uh, my involvement, we have started to be strategically reaching out and, and expanding our base. Wow, so 20 years ago, but in the last five maybe, you've come together as a collective, is that correct? Am I understanding that? That's correct. So, you know, there was these individual advocacy um, organizations within communities which were doing a great job championing, championing needs within their individual community bases, um, but they weren't working on a collective basis and they weren't uh, pushing for provincial-wide change. They were looking at local um, situations in, in local jurisdictions. And so the provincial reach happened on the formation of the BC Rural Health Network. And so were you part of one of those organizations, one of those smaller organizations? No, uh, but I was very much involved at that point in my working career in the healthcare field. You know, I'm one of the in individuals who came, came to British Columbia um, through my parents' immigration to, to Canada. And my dad was a physician here, um, and he 
served 20 years in the UK before he uh, was uh, recruited and, and came to rural British Columbia. And so he went from an urban population in, in England to uh, a very small rural population in, in British Columbia. And my dad served here for another 30 years until he retired at the age of 75. And he was one of two physicians left in the community. And, uh, you know, they were splitting on call and to leave the community without any, with one physician would have left the community with none. So, you know, people have gone above and beyond to, in order to try and preserve rural health services. And I set up his practice um, and set him, set him up um, in business. And we worked on advocacy together on fighting for protection of services within our community. And my career path kind of took a tangent from from that. Um, but it's funny how things come come around. And you know, here, 20 years later, I'm 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 back into advocacy for for health in British Columbia. Well, you touched on it a little bit. Access to even a physician. In, in rural communities, there is such a long list of, of issues in rural and remote communities across Canada. Can you touch on a few that perhaps your organization is advocating for or trying to draw attention to in British Columbia? Primary focus of the organization is to look at health equity and, and ensuring that everybody, and we, we do mean everybody, um, is included and their voice is heard, and that uh, we find, you know, high-level overarching issues that that impact all rural res- residents. So whether you, you're, um, you know, a a indigenous community, or whether you're a municipality, or whether you live in a, a regional district without representation, uh, you still need access to the same primary services, and we all have the same biology and, and makeup. So, you know, ensuring that the outcomes that come in the end, the basic health requirements are provided. So many of the challenges that we, we see in rural BC are the same that you see across rural Canada. Um, we do have a very diverse Indigenous population with, with 200 uh, Indigenous communities. We have, uh, you know, a, a massive uh, and uh, a uh, non-municipal uh, community population of around 850 communities, and then there's another, you know, uh, 120 small municipalities in BC. So you, you're dealing with literally thousands of communities, now well over a thousand communities, and those communities are all individual and they're all unique. So you know the the saying goes is if, if you've been to one rural community in BC, you've been to one rural community in BC. So finding common threads and, and uh, things which are not community specific is really what we what we look to. So uh, recruitment, retention is always a problem. It's a problem in urban uh, Canada. It's a problem uh, which is magnified and enhanced in, in rural Canada. And the more isolated your community is, the more difficult it is to recruit and retain. The more isolated your community is, the less uh, infrastructure there is for communication. So providing remote access to health and doing those types of things is also uh, becomes an additional challenge. 
there's all kinds of barriers around uh, culture and language. So, uh, you know, we, we see that throughout rural BC and we have 30 different First Nation languages and about 60 different dialects, which uh, again, don't necessarily get accommodated within within the healthcare system and uh, the uh, indigenous cultural, cultural safety aspect of health is a common thread throughout uh, BC. And I think that you know we have a have a long way to go in creating equity in outcomes and allowing people to live and stay in place uh, in British Columbia. Have you heard any particular stories, highlights that that troubled you? You're speaking with a lot of organizations that have a lot of stories of people falling through the cracks. Are there any that stick out for you that that made you? really, you know, feel like I, this work is urgent. There's so many, you know, and it's almost daily that you see something new come up in, in the media over acts of violence against people and, and just plain discrimination against groups. I was recently involved in an indigenous cultural safety course. And one of the participants of First Nations, he was a physician and he presented at the hospital emergency room with a condition and he sat and he watched and people literally walked by him continually, passed over him and went to other patients and provided treatment and service. And he was literally the last person sitting there um, before he was the one who was provided care. And that just kind of highlighted to me the significance of, of uh, bringing healthcare teams up to up to snuff in in regards to their treatment of others and, and the understanding and the lack of education that still exists and we're making inroads and you know when we, when we look at uh, reports coming up you know we, we work a lot with UBC and, and UVic and the University of Northern British Columbia University of BC Okanagan and research teams and you look at the papers and researches which uh, come out um, there is, you know, from a data point of view, there's, there's an improvement happening in in how people are treated with equity, but it's just not not there yet. That's going to be an ongoing improvement for years to come. So I, I don't think that uh, you know we're going to we're going to change things overnight. I think uh, as a province we we are more progressive than others. Um, I think that we we do. Uh, see some of the problems within within the, the system and that there is systematic change occurring. We, we just need to do more of it. We need to do it sooner. We need to be more inclusive within our education systems and, and have more, more education happening right from elementary school all the way through to through the university system into understanding more about individual cultures and practices and sensitivities and biases and prejudice. So uh, we've got a long way to go, but uh, yeah, we, we, I, th I think we're on the, on the right track. We're not anywhere close to being there yet. Well, you mentioned that change is happening and, and that's encouraging and hopeful. Why do you think that that is happening? You talked about education. I'm sure that, that your father wasn't one of these. However, there's a tendency to think that an older generation, perhaps, of physicians may have biases 
uh, especially in a smaller community where no, no one wants to move to. No new doctors want to fill that space. And perhaps you have someone who needs gender affirming care uh, or a woman wants access to an abortion. And there is a physician that has a, a mindset perhaps that, uh, or a judgment. And so how, how do you, how do you change that? I think we, we work with that. So again, I, I don't, you know, know that, that my dad wasn't one of those people. And I don't know that I'm not one of those people. I think recognizing that we all have biases and screens of prejudice become essential to changing how, how we think and how we view the world. So I think that's part of it. I, th I think, uh, you know, again, you look at studies and from a data perspective, only 10% of physicians in BC acknowledge that they have an, a, a reasonable understanding of LGBTQ health and health needs, and that means 90% don't. And you can pretty much guarantee that the 10% live primarily in Vancouver. <clears throat> so you have a huge uh, gap there from a, a rural knowledge perspective. And then as you say, you're bringing in physicians into communities that uh, other physicians may not want to take take that practice. And it's not just physicians, it's, it goes throughout the healthcare system. So it goes right the way down to the volunteer base and many of the groups that I represent are volunteers. Um, so we start changing that by educating our own people. And we start doing that by creating more diversity within our own group. And we start doing that by moving from the grassroots up instead of from the just from the top down. So you can make policy changes and you can make changes in legislation at a provincial level. Um, but until you actually work with your community individually and, and bring the information flow through the community, uh, you, you tend not to, you tend to get, often you'll get rejection and pushback on, on high level top-down approaches from government, especially in, in rural. I think the other challenge is that you get um, physicians coming in from other countries that typically will, will start their careers off in, in rural BC. And they may have, again, it's not to say that they all have or that, that, uh, that again, not wanting to label anybody, but you will have, you know, perhaps a, a different cultural perspective on, on rights and freedoms and on the concepts and, and, and thoughts behind who is what and those biases and prejudices uh, do present in practice, you know. So you'll see, you know, maybe a foreign trained physician coming in from a country which doesn't have the same level of freedom and, and, and freedom of speech or exposure to uh, different cultures and, and, and sensitivities or has a, uh, again, it could, could be religious based as well. I mean, there's all kinds of different reasons and ways that uh, these problems enter the system. And, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we can we can change all of that, other than you know through the global effort to to in, increase awareness and and so you know it becomes our organisation is is strictly focused on on BC rural health um, and that is obviously a massive challenge within itself. So we we don't step over provincial boundaries in that in, in that way, but we. We do learn from other jurisdictions and try and find best practices and and talk about those internally and see how we can 
you know, provide better better care systems, which are more inclusive, more community centric, more more team based care, and uh, again, there's better information provision. Uh, my son, who uh, you know, I have three kids, and my my youngest is now uh, in nursing school to become an RN. And is uh, you know he was raised he wasn't born in a rural community because we had no facilities to provide labor support so he was born in an urban center but grew up in in rural BC and uh, went from there to Vancouver Island and is in Northern Ireland uh, College on on nursing and his class last week were sitting in in the big house in in Comox and. Uh, getting to learn and understand a lot more about uh, uh, cultural sensitivity and, and indigenous needs within that particular nation. And the platform for the education has expanded now to have a lot more inclusion on um, indigenous cultural safety, but also looking at all of these uh, issues around discrimination that we're talking about. So, you know, again, it's happening today. We will see that transfer into practice in two or three years time and you know hopefully over the next generation we'll see a, a systematic shift uh, a better system that's more inclusive of, of everybody I certainly hope for that too the tendency I think is is to think that the government isn't spending enough money when the pandemic laid bare a lot of the ills of the healthcare systems across Canada. Each province is different, like you said, but the tendency is to think the government isn't spending enough money. We're not getting paid enough money. And and then people, they, they follow the headlines. They don't follow the whole story. So what is the whole story that you'd like people to know? I, I think that money doesn't solve all the problems in, in you know on this particular point, uh, uh, but it does solve some of them. And quite often in, in conversations that we have at a political level, the the statements come back to say that, uh, you know, if it was just a money problem, that would be an easy problem to fix. Well, we do have some money problems. <laughs> so let's fix those easy problems would be would be a good, good starting place. And, um, you know, th things like out-of-pocket expense for for travel reimbursement for rural residents is a big problem. So, you know, if you live in a community and you're, you're one of the most vulnerable members of that community and you're low income and you're, you're somewhat segregated from, from others, that uh, your opportunities to seek care are, are limited and they become further limited and, and people suffer unnecessarily and, and conditions become more chronic uh, over time and uh, then that has a downstream effect of increasing the cost in the healthcare system so it's not that we don't spend any money on healthcare it's the big, biggest budget item on the on the on the page uh, so there's lots of money being spent but the, there's lots of money to be saved by improving the health and wellness of people and if you were to do that in a, in a manner, again, that just provides, keeps existing services in play, expands services to remote communities by decentralizing some of the centralized practices that have happened, uh, you start uh, creating a better safety net 
for the most vulnerable in those communities. Maternity care is a, is a great example of, of, of that. I live in the Upper Similkameen region of, of British Columbia on the traditional unceded territory of the Silks First Nation. And I'm just outside the community of Princeton. And Princeton is uh, southern uh, interior of British Columbia, fairly close to the U.S. border, but separated by the Cascade mountain mountain range and uh we're quite isolated so we're you know we're, we're a population catchment area of five thousand people um and the hospital the community uh that i live uh, closest to um princeton has a population base of two thousand people and our nearest center for specialty care um is a an hour and a half uh, commute to to reach. Now that doesn't sound like a massive distance, but if you need to see a specialist on a regular basis and you have no transportation, how do you do that? If you if you were wanting to start a family in this community, you've got to plan around the fact that you're not going to be able to to give birth here with any any medical support. Um, so then you have to look at how you're going to plan and how you're going to relocate uh, to a larger center for and again depending on complications and conditions within within the pregnancy that may be an extended period of time that uh, somebody may have to go and travel to and live in uh, a center which does have supportive services so how do you support that and in here when we lost our, our surgical center um, you know we had day surgeries and we had uh, you know just regular um, surgical care, but that, that allowed for, for maternity care back when I was a, a, a teenager. And then when we lost that surgical center, uh, we lost surgeons, we lost anesthesiologists, we lost, you know, OBYN, we lost everybody who had a tie to the surgical team. Then you, you reduce the quality of care that can be provided because you don't have the skill set within the community. And you lose the team-based approach, and you become a triage facility. So you know you're spending a lot of time uh, getting people prepared to move to another larger centre for emergency treatment, and that puts a strain on the downstream side of surgical beds in the in the larger centre. But it puts a massive strain on ambulance service and emergency paramedics as well, and those systems have all been under strain as well. So, you know, staffing has been a problem throughout. You know, we're all competing for the same resources across Canada. And when you talk about money, you know, we just put in a new uh, pay agreement with, with physicians that have been negotiated for the past period of time, which increases their pay rate. And, you know, that may help uh, to some degree. It may stabilize uh, keep a physician in a community which may otherwise look to relocate to a higher paying jurisdiction or province, um, but it, it can drain resources from other provinces as well. So, you know, again, we're looking to try and create equity for people and equity and outcomes. And it's not really about, um, you know, just me and, and, and my community. It's about that overall health picture and, and we can expand that to a, to a Canada-wide view. Uh, again, our, our focus is, is on BC, but we acknowledge that you know money isn't going to solve the physician shortage problem. 
and it may draw more physicians uh, into large urban centers in British Columbia who uh, would like to live there, but uh, until now were not able to. And so, you know, that that becomes problematic as well. So we, we don't know what the downstream effect of, of that is. But we again, you know, when we talk about money going into the system, um, it's about how that money is spent and about how uh, we can enhance rural care and stabilize rural care. And really, that is, um, you know, our purpose and, and uh, taking research and, and driving it through to being actual policy and practice has been something which has been very challenging for rural research to, to you know, the, the, we're often seen, uh, rural is often seen as being small urban and we're not, you know, we're, we're very different. So and, and when you have a hospital and you have a, or a, an ambulance service or any individual aspect of that system fail, the entire system fails. So unlike in a larger urban center when you lose a physician um, or you lose, perhaps you even have to have a closure because of lack of staff or a pandemic or whatever may happen to come to be, um, you still have other facilities within a very close proximity that you can access and you may have to wait longer to, to get there. In rural life, if you lose a physician, you probably lost your emergency department, and then you probably have a two-hour commute to get to the next one, uh, if you're lucky. You know, uh, some people have you know, an eight-hour commute because of ferries and, and other travel restrictions and difficulties in reaching service. The problems are the same; they are magnified um, in in rural BC, and again, each of these communities, the over a thousand different communities have individual challenges, so uh, it becomes incredibly complex. And we certainly need to start being able to provide people with the means to be able to travel to seek the care that they, they need. And, you know, we've, had, we've seen <clears throat> the repercussions of not having strong transportation systems in place and, you know, from the national inquiry into missing Aboriginal women and, and the, the situation that has happened in northern BC is happening in other areas of BC where people, you know, indigenous women are, are missing and uh, northern Vancouver Island, uh, the, the northwest corridor of British Columbia. And a lot of that has to do with the lack of transportation available, public transportation available, and, you know, all kinds of other underlying issues and, and problems that, that we see. Uh, but the yeah, you know that uh, the means to get people from point A to point B safely uh, is a is a big problem, and get, getting them there expeditiously in in an emergency is a huge problem. You know we see a need to do a lot more in spending money on things which are going to make an immediate immediate difference, and and public transportation would be one of them. But uh, out of pocket costs is, is certainly one of them for, for low-income and vulnerable popu populations. So you talked about changing policy, and, and mm. this is an example uh, of, of one of the things you're, you're asking for is, you know, the transportation costs to be covered. Making policy change is a quagmire. I think we all know that of, of navigating politicians, government, institutions, hospitals, and... I guess I, I wanted to know how do you stay nonpartisan and how do you make inroads? Well, 
I think we have, uh, you know, a strong team in place is, is number one. You know, it, we are community-based volunteer groups are kind of the backbone of our organization and people who have been exposed to local community issues and have community knowledge. Um, and as I stated, we, we want to diversify that core team of, uh, of our group to have more inclusion of, of others so that we have more represented voices. Um, sitting at the decision-making table with inside the BC Rural Health Network. Um, but we also have uh, some very um, significant players on our team who are not the board directly, but we have liaison representation from from other groups. So uh, we have created an implementation committee. That implementation committee is chaired by Dr. Jude Cornelson. Uh, she is a lead researcher out of the um, Rural Research Center of UBC. And she's spent the past two decades doing research into enhancing rural rural health care for all British Columbians and travels extensively throughout the province and visits uh, all types of communities uh, throughout BC. And, you know, she's chairing that and uh, we open that committee up to people who can provide a benefit to, to, the, to the body. Um, and it, you don't have to be a member, but you, you do have to provide a... a something that we're, we're missing from the team or, or, or being viewed as being necessary to to inclusion. And um, we then take uh, a position and we define it and we refine it and we take it back to our, our main body. Uh, we approve that and then we push it and we do that uh, on both sides of the political aisle. So we don't just work with the with the government in in power. We 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 um, provide the information to to the opposition and to the third party uh, in in BC, which is the BC Greens. So we have um, you know we work with 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 all political entities. And so it's not that we're uh, completely uh, inactive politically. Where we we just remain neutral in our political position and we make sure the document documents and position papers that we produce are non-political and we're charitable in nature we we don't not just in nature but we're, we're charitable by definition as well we, we are a registered charity and what we do is again we provide a conduit between authorities and between the residents so we want to make that a, a two a bi-directional approach of communication and uh, you know we hit on issues which are common throughout the landscape so uh, you know they're non-controversial to the membership it's not that we're promoting something that somebody doesn't want to see it's pretty hard to say i don't want health equity or you know i don't want emergency medical services or i don't want a physician so you know we pick we pick low-hanging fruit from the standpoint of of, of where we want to see changes happen and then we're utilizing the media. And, you know, an example of that is, is this podcast today. We get exposure throughout uh, provincial media outlets. We get exposure at the national level when it, when it's due. And we do get high-level meetings with uh, leaders of health authorities as well as uh, with ministers directly and, and with, with the bureaucracy below it. And, uh, you know, we have only really organized to the point of being an effective voice uh, uh, recently. We've been, you know, effective in, in hearing and listening to community concerns for years and be 
before the before the actual formation of the group. Um, so and, and you know for a lot of time the group has felt that we're we're at tables and we're listened to for the benefit of providing a check checkbox um, next to consulted with um and you know we we want to be heard so uh, we're we're being more forceful in that in that advocacy for positions which make sense to everyone and again without looking at it through an individual lens other than a rural lens and then making sure that uh, you know that position is is correct and uh, is supported and that we can support it through research based evidence and we we see that evidence expanding into the community so that you know when there is known local issues and there's known local solutions that becomes part of the the picture of the evidence that needs to be to be handed over and portrayed to to the powers that be we're not going to make any shocking overnight changes in in policy uh, but we are going to be persistent and 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 continuous in our in our efforts of not only bringing good sound research to the policy that needs to be implemented but increasing the voice that we represent do you have any opponents does your organization get flack from anyone including politicians or uh, you know members of communities that that don't believe in that kind of grassroots approach I don't think we have opponents. I think we have people, and we have again. We're we're on a currently looking at uh, trying to enhance our municipal membership, and that's not from the point of view of representing an individual municipality, but it's from the point of view of increasing the represented voice. So, um, over the past couple of months, we've been uh, presenting to community councils and and getting uh, membership from them. Um, and that's been incredibly successful and, and booked well into next year on doing whirlwind Zoom tour of BC. So it's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. But, you know, again, we're, we're immature in our in our fabric. Um, so, you know, we, we, we're not reaching enough people. I don't have enough resources. I don't have staff. I don't have... Um, you know what I need in tools in my in, in my belt uh, in order to do a better job of representing more people. And you know we need education for our own network. We need education happening at our board level. We need education happening in our membership level. And I don't have the resources to prov provide that. So we get pushed back in the sense that I'm not getting funded. Um, I'm still seeking funding. And we need it. We need, we need uh, core funding. We need it to come from the government. It needs to be stable. Um, so, uh, and that's going to be controversial because other people want money. And again, we go, we go back to the money conversations. Where where does the money come from? Well, what happens if you don't spend the money? Is is the response? You know. So if if you don't spend the money, you'll see a decline and a degradation that we have seen over throughout the pandemic. Um, and we, you'll see it magnify. And you'll see, you know, these isolated uh, residents who take extreme positions and uh, extreme prejudices and extreme biases, and, and in the name of freedom, recently, and you know, this is a 
horrendous event in my my personal view, and I think from a lot of informed people's points of view on on the on how uh, unstable the situation is and how easily the scale is tipped in the wrong direction, and the real need to invest in that grassroots communication and, and bringing information from uh, the community through the community. And social media has been a, a you know a big problem in becoming the community coffee shop in rural BC and people expressing viewpoints that are not even from our country and uh, you know don't have any connection to rural British Columbia presenting as if uh, there are viewpoints and they're not. So, you know, we do have informed community members and uh, we need to utilize them to inform the the community themselves in, in the way that rural communities have communicated for, for well, since their conception is, you know, by, by talking to each other and speaking to your neighbor and getting out there and uh, saying, no, you know, that's wrong. And calling out people when when uh, you know they they say things which are completely inappropriate. Uh, we don't do we don't do that very well anymore. It's uh, you know there's a, a lot of a lot of a lot of battles happen uh, on the keyboard, um, but uh, they're not they're not productive conversations that uh, did typically used to happen in the coffee shop and then spread through. You know, and then when something was was awry and and people wanted to correct correct something, they they did so uh, directly. So we're you know we're we're a safeguard against that if there's a good investment in in it. Uh, we also do get pushback from some municipalities in and from saying, you know, this is a provincial issue, not a municipal issue, and health. Is under the jurisdiction of the province, so uh, we've got enough on our plate. Thank you very much. We don't want to deal with it. And again, my my response to that is, well, that's why we're here, you know, so that we can deal with it, and you don't have to. We also will take the evidence uh, side of things. We'll take research um, to the community. So you know, if if uh, UBC or another large uh, research center is conducting a study on something specific, you know, we will go out and make sure that the, that we get a, a rural perspective come back to that to that group um, by providing the research and focusing on areas where they want to get data which they currently don't. And you know, they have their own teams to do that, but our network is expanding enough that we become quite effective in in getting research response from these grassroots organizations that work within rural communities across the province. I wonder what's next for you. I mean, you talked about your your long list of Zoom calls uh, that are booking up. Um, you talked about funding. Uh, what are some of the um, initiatives and, and things that you're looking at into 2023? We're using this implementation committee as being our main uh, portal for, for creating uh, a policy, policy position papers. First one that came out, and again, the, the fairly new. So we're, we're, the, the implementation committee has only been in operation for uh, a couple of months, but I think we've we've met probably six or seven times during 
during that couple of months, first as an internal team and then expanding out and opening it up to uh, inclusion of other groups, organizations, and the public. And uh, our first piece to come out was our, our position on community engagement and and how to bring the community voice back into the healthcare planning. Because again, part of the centralization process, we had regional, local hospital boards, which were informing decision-making at the local level. And those were problematic and probably way too many of them. And they were you know, very much just centered and focused on an individual um, specific community issue. Um, but it was also very necessary in forming the decision makers of, of, of what the community concerns were and how, how to address them with through a local lens and providing local solutions. I mean, you know, rural residents are pretty self-sufficient people who don't need a heck of a lot. But, you know, if you take away the little that we do have, we, we end up uh, being the inequity becomes uh, magnified yet again. So we, we look at Again, we, we we want to use that uh, that body in order to to create uh, positions that we can then champion out to the media and and through the political process, and hopefully get change. And again, the more uh, infrastructure that that the organisation has and the and and the uh, more resources we have available to do that, um, the 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 more effective we become. So uh, there is a a big focus for us on trying to gain that uh, core funding that, that we need in order to, to stabilize ourselves. Uh, we have a, our next implementation meeting on December the 1st, and uh, we've just uh, finalized that first position paper. The next position that we're going to address is out-of-pocket expense. And uh, again, we're, we're formulating that again with this collective approach and solutions-based approach. And, uh, you know what is the impact to the most vulnerable? Where, where, where? How do you create the the funding to do that? How do you make sure that it's not a rebate on a uh, on a on the income tax that nobody is uh, who is in the most vulnerable category is actually going to utilize? Um, how do we make sure that there's equity in how those funds are handled and, and treated? And, uh, and the question will come from the political base: where where does the money come from? And so we try and provide you know sound um, information that that can be used for policy direction. And I think in in the in in that circumstance where we're looking at something that is very solvable, you know, it's not a it's not a big huge uh, thing to figure out on that you know you have it costs you money to travel from A to B. And you need to be able to re reimburse people for those costs if they can't afford to seek care. Um, you know, let's let's expand existing programs that do some of that, and let's do do more of it. But that type of low-hanging fruit situation does draw attention, so we do, we do get we will get picked up um, well within the media in addressing things which you know impact everyone. You know, people can understand that. It's not a controversial issue. It's a matter of doing it well and not making it into a bureaucratic um, nightmare. You know, we tend to we tend to like to create our our uh, very complicated systems, and and uh, you know, I think there needs to be a little bit more simplicity in in some of the approaches we take. So I mean, we're just going to continue. We're going to continue doing that. We're going to take that issue. We we will refine it. We'll bring it back. We'll 
approve it, we'll we'll push it forward, we'll take the next issue, and we'll and we'll move on, and uh, we won't leave any of those issues um, out there. We, you know, we, we like to we like to conclude business, and uh, you know, it's not a a simple matter of having a meeting or getting a press release out or getting some media attention. It's following through. And it's getting more people included in the voice that we represent. And as we reach out more and our diversity increases and as we build the base that is more hospitable to the inclusion of others, I think we will be um, an effective means of, of, of bringing policy into practice. Did I hear you say you're doing this by volunteer? Are you a volunteer? Uh, well, I can tell you, I'm, I'm. I volunteer the majority of my my time. Uh, we receive uh, a, and very grateful for a small grant of twenty four thousand dollars, and uh, we uh, get that uh, indirectly through the Rural Coordination Center of BC, and that's championed by uh, the Rural Physicians of BC and its initiative that is funded through the Joint Standing Committee on Rural Issues uh, by the Doctors of BC and the Ministry of Health. And we receive actually money uh, through the RCCBC, which comes from um, the Michael Smith Foundation. Michael Smith Foundation is a research body. So there's a lot of complexity in in all of these things. And uh, so, yeah, there's $24,000 that we, we have um, as our annual budget and then we have um, uh, our membership fee which we keep at a very low level and because we're not really looking to to fund the organization through through the membership side we're looking at increasing the voice through the membership side and yeah so you know I'd, I probably put in 60 70 hours a week a lot of weeks I've been on team for a year I haven't had a week off or time off and I have a whole team behind me who get nothing and do a lot of work as well. And, you know, we have a contribution in kind just from volunteer hours was, um, you know, we, we had about $100,000 from our from our board's contribution in their volunteer time within the community. So, you know, there's a lot of work being done without any reimbursement. And the, the reimbursement is not uh, what the purpose is. The purpose is about creating that health equity, and and we do need money. I mean, people can't can't continue to to do what they do without uh, you know making a living, and they're certainly not able to attract a, a team of staff and say, "Come work for us. We'll pay you nothing." So <laughs> there's challenges, and uh, we see those challenges as being very uh, you know. Uh, easily overcome if we can, if we can secure that that core funding and and again we, we want to be accountable we want to be transparent uh, we're not you know we're not in here for for the money end of it we're we're here for making a difference and we believe we provide a benefit uh, to to the authorities and to the government and uh, we certainly feel we provide a benefit to the rural resident so that's uh, that's the motivation. Anything else you'd like to say? Anything else you missed? I just encourage people to come visit our website at, at uh, bcruralhealth.org. 
Uh, we've got a lot of resources on there. We do post out a lot of uh, current news and media information in our, in our library as our, as our blog. And uh, there's a great resource there, too, for people looking at political positions and, and uh, news over the years, because that, that database goes back uh, almost to the start of the BC Rural Health Network. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're interested in to see what someone's position was on something, couple of years ago, you head to our library and you, you type it in and you, you're probably going to find a wealth of information ar around a particular subject matter. And again, there's lots of gaps in that knowledge base, but that's part of our purpose too, is to keep increasing the information that is there and putting out. Uh, I'd encourage people to come and sign up for our newsletter, which is Rural Health Matters. And you'll see that we have an entire uh, section on newsletters. And it's not just ours, it's other organizations that we see as being like-minded and, and, and uh, working for the benefit, and some of them for just general health, but some of them for uh, specifically on, on rural issues. And, um, you know, I would encourage you to join uh, the BC Rural Health Network if you're a BC resident. And even if you're, if you're not and you're interested in in rural wellness, I think you know our voice expands as our membership does. So if we we get inclusion from other, I, I do have a member in Edmonton, so I can proudly say that we're we are interprovincial. Uh, but <laughs> our base is certainly British Columbia, and uh, you know if you are listening to the podcast and and yeah, you're you're an indigenous population in British Columbia. Uh, we don't represent uh, individual indigenous concerns and, and, and uh, representation, but we do believe that uh, our positions will impact all British Columbians, and we really want to have, be more inclusive in our voice, and uh, we would love to, um, to hear from you and, and understand more about uh, the indigenous concerns throughout the province, which are, uh, again, we're, we're the only province in in the country i believe that actually has a health authority um the, uh, which is strictly based on on first nations and 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 improving cultural sensitivity and acknowledging the the challenges that uh they have faced historically and and into the present day so uh, we're looking to include you, you everyone everybody uh, uh is welcome and everybody everybody um, we, we, we want to hear, hear what you have to say, and we want to relay that information as best we can uh, in a way which is going to help all rural residents. Paul, thank you so much. Uh, we have so much more to talk about, I'm sure, <laughs> but I really appreciate your time today, and, and I definitely want to uh, check back in with you, and we'll put that um, link to your website in the show notes so people can look you up and uh, communicate with you. So. Thank you again, and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Shona, and thank you for what you're doing. I've, I listened to several of your podcasts, and I found them very informative and helpful. And again, I, I think expanding our our understanding of others is is something which is so important to to you know, bringing us to the next level of the society. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. 
it really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine It Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Temp Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 